0: In the hundreds of years since its conception, the Bible has been revised into countless incarnations. So it's only natural that our collective interpretation of its content has evolved in that time. Far from the unflinching fundamentalist societies that once populated the Western world, many today openly doubt the legitimacy of the more fantastic elements of the Judeo-Christian texts. Other, more determined parties have gone through great pains to rationalize the miraculous episodes with naturalistic explanations, such as Burgundy algae dyeing the Nile blood red, a meteor destroying Sodom and Gomorrah, and partially submerged ice patches granting Jesus the ability to walk on water. Still, there remains the persistent believer who derives a literal understanding from the sacred writing. Reverend Turk, an Iowan Methodist preacher, proved himself to be such a figure when in 1866 he began to argue with a Binghamton cigar maker named George Hull as to whether giants truly once walked the earth as the book of Genesis professes. Dressed always in black, Hull stood over six feet tall despite stooped shoulders. A black mustache and beard punctuated his otherwise red face. No doubt he appeared like some sort of supervillain to the priest as he slandered the scripture. At this time, America was in the midst of its third great awakening, and Hull, a fervent atheist, decided that a man of such blind faith deserved to be taught a lesson. I'm Jason Potel, and you're listening to Snake Oil. George Hull began by venturing to the stone quarries of Fort Dodge, Iowa, in search of a block of gypsum measuring 12 feet by 4 feet by 2 feet. When asked why he needed such a large slab, he gave a variety of answers. Sometimes he said it was to be placed on exhibition in Washington as a specimen of the best building stone in the world. Other times he claimed it as Iowa's gift to the Lincoln Memorial or a New York monument to be made from quarries of each state in the Union. Once he secured a suitable specimen, Hull had it transported over 40 miles to a train station, destroying a number of wagons and bridges in the process. From there, Hull had it sent to Chicago, where stonecutter Edward Burkhart and his two assistants chiseled it into the likeness of a 10-foot man weighing in at just under 3,000 pounds. They rendered the giant's expression serene, but its pose was stiff, with one foot drawn up and the right hand resting on the abdomen with the other pressed against the back, suggesting a particularly agonizing demise. Burkhart used a metal hammer with leaden needle-like points to give the appearance of pores. After experimenting with a number of treatments, the trio rubbed sulfuric acid on the gypsum, rendering it a dingy brown and giving it the appearance of veins. Hull then soaked it for hours to give it a water-worn quality. Although the giant started out with hair and a beard, the ever-meticulous Hull consulted geologists and discovered that hair did not petrify, so they were ultimately removed, leaving it bald. Once completed, Hull shipped it to the hamlet of Cardiff, New York, just south of Syracuse. The town was built on top of an ancient lake bed where fossilized fish and reptiles were commonly found, so it seemed like a plausible discovery location to Hull. They gave a dozen explanations of what they were shipping to inquisitive passers-by, ranging from a tobacco press to the body of Confederacy President Jefferson Davis. And while they certainly could not have seemed like a trustworthy bunch, most people assumed it was simply contraband tobacco they were hauling and left them to their business. But with the statue made and transported back to New York, he'd now need a place to bury it. Q. William Stubb Newell, Hull's brother-in-law.
1: Stubb Newell is not not really, you couldn't call him the useful idiot. I think he was into it. Uh, he knew what he was getting
0: involved in. That's Professor Kenneth Fetter, an archeologist who specializes in hoaxes.
1: But George Hull is the guy, he was the brains behind this. He was the money behind it. He bought the gypsum. He hired the, the sculptors in Chicago. He, sh- he paid for having it shipped to New York. Um, and I think Stubb just thought, well, this, this would be a pretty good humbug.
0: Newell arranged for the statue to be buried on his grounds on a dark November evening in 1868, a full two years since the theological debate that had inspired the ruse. All remained quiet in the town of Cardiff for one year longer until October 16th, 1869, when Newell hired Gideon Emmons and Henry Nichols to dig a well for his cattle directly behind his barn. Within an hour of their work, the two men had struck the statue, just as Newell had planned.
1: When... Stubb Newell has the men dig the dig the the well and they find the, the remains of this giant petrified this petrified giant from before Noah's flood. I think people were initially fascinated by this, first in a general sense. All right, wow, there were giants? That's an amazing story. But I think also in the sense that well, this seems to support a story in the Bible. And it's not just It's not just David and Goliath. There are multiple references in the Old Testament to giant beings, whole kingdoms of giants. I think the kingdom of Og in the Old Testament is supposed to be populated by, inhabited by giant human beings or whether they're giant humans or Nephilim is unclear. And so, you know, when people hear that, hey, this little farm in upstate New York, somebody has found the remains of a, of a man who was 10 or 11 or 12 feet tall, that certainly struck a chord in the minds of a lot of folks, both from a religious perspective, but just the perspective of, wow, this is something we didn't know about the past before. And I think for a very long time it continues today, there's this kind of this fascination with the notion that somebody who is not scientifically trained, who's not a scientist, can make a discovery that completely flips science on its head. And so I think there's some of that, this kind of, well, those scientists, they think they know so much, but here's a simple farmer who has found something that scientists have never been able to find. So it, I think it, it, it people found this an engaging discovery on a number of levels. Um, the religious level, just pure fascination, and also kind of putting scientists in their place—they didn't find this. A simple country farmer in New York found something that's going to completely cause the rewriting of of, of history and geology and archaeology, and I think that people found that fascinating and were attracted to uh, for these multiple reasons.
0: The local press immediately picked up the story, drawing hundreds of people to the farm in a matter of days. Cardiff was located along what some have called the Broad Psychic Highway, a narrow 300-mile strip across New York State, famous for its religious fervor and marveling discoveries, including dinosaur bones and Joseph Smith's golden plates. It's difficult for
1: people living in the early 21st century to imagine what it was like when um, these various religious uh, and social... Uh, movements were occurring. I mean, spiritualism was a really big deal, and it's amazing to consider that the number of people who sort of bought into this notion that underpin spiritualism—that you could communicate with the dead directly, that the dead had an active role in the lives of of living people—and that this was considered sort of
0: just normal and standard. In fact, this was not even the first giant discovered in the region. Prior to this, five large human skeletons had allegedly been dug up in Cazanovia and Kenestota, two villages 20 miles from Cardiff, but that's another story. Newspapers across the country dubbed the Cardiff Giant the Eighth Wonder of the World, and while everyone shared a desire to view it, they all arrived at different conclusions upon witnessing it in person. Some took the bait and declared the find to be a genuine petrified giant. With Charles Darwin's Origin of the Species having come out in the last decade, many saw this as some combination of geology and theology. One prominent clergyman declared upon seeing it, quote, This is not a thing contrived of man, but it is the face of one who lived on the earth, the very image and child of God, quote. Four local doctors agreed that they were looking at a petrified man. Others insisted it was an ancient relic from some lost Native American civilization. One man named Dr. John F. Boynt believed it to be the work of early Jesuit priests. A Yale graduate student named Alexander McHorder wrote a 17-page article claiming the gypsum figure to be Baal, an ancient Phoenician god. He backed this up with a translation of pictorial inscriptions on the statue that nobody but him could see. Paleontology professor James Hall, who served as director of the New York State Museum at the time, called it, quote, the most remarkable object yet brought to light in this country, end quote. However, it didn't take long for doubts to form. Well,
1: I think what was really interesting about it is that initially, most, not all, but most scientists, trained people, artists, sculptors who saw the giant, immediately declared it to be either a complete fake or well yeah it's just an old statue it's not a petrified man um uh here in connecticut uh, at yale university the professor of paleontology at the time was othniel c marsh o.c marsh famous guy if you see especially here in the east if you go to any museum here and see dinosaur remains, you're looking at stuff that, or that is, if, if it's from the 19th century, O.C. Marsh had a role in it. And so Marsh being a very famous, well-known paleontologist was called in to look at the Carter giant. He declared it immediately to be a humbug. Um, Andrew White, the president of Cornell University, and he was a, a, a Yale alum and he knew Marsh uh, he asked Marsh to to chime in on it because you know he said, well, this is Cornell. It's up here in upstate New York. O c. Marsh, you're a famous paleontologist. What do you think? And that's it was really at, at the, the behest of 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 Andrew White that marsh that um that o c. Marsh looked at this and actually wrote up a piece at essentially saying it is beyond my comprehension that anybody with even a modicum of of knowledge about geology would say that this is a petrified man.
0: Marsh's sentiment was quickly reaffirmed by a number of other experts like chemist Benjamin Silliman and sculptor Erastus Dow Palmer. But Hull didn't pay this any mind. Any blow to his smug sense of superiority was financially compensated. In fact, after investing a mere $2,500 in pulling off this feat, he was making back profits hand over fist.
1: And so almost immediately, just within a few days, a circus tent is erected over the fine spot. The archaeologists use the, the Latin phrase "in situ" for artifacts that are left in place, exactly where we find them. The Cardiff Giant was initially left in situ, left exactly where he was discovered. Ted put over it. They hire a carnival barker to be the the docent, and then they start bringing people in a couple of dozen at a time. And initially, it's all local folks, but pretty soon. Various newspapers pick up the story that a farmer in upstate New York has just made this amazing discovery, a giant petrified man, probably from before Noah's flood. And so people from New York City uh, take the train up, people from Albany, people from Boston and Hartford and New Haven, uh, Philadelphia, and Washington, D.C., start congregating in this
0: tiny little town. Charging just 50 cents for admission to witness the petrified primordial being, Hull was quickly raking in $12,000. Between 300 and 500 visitors arrived each day, and one particularly successful Sunday saw almost 3,000 tickets sold. In fact, as writer James Taylor Dunn puts it, it was hardly respectable not to have seen the giant. One especially awestruck man from New York City even offered $100 for a flake of stone from the giant's body. The giant had truly sunk its claws into the cultural landscape of the time.
1: L. Frank Baum, the guy who wrote Wizard of Oz, he writes a poem, a kind of funny, sarcastic poem about the Cardiff giant being a giant from before Noah's flood. And he was a real pain in the ass on the ark. And he, he walked off the ark and drowned. And his body has now been found by a farmer in Cardiff. So this is something that it really it, it struck a nerve and popular media of the day books newspapers and magazines glommed onto it because it was it was kind of hilarious
0: with all of the success newell could now be seen around town wearing striped trousers and a cutaway coat a startling change after having spent years in grimy overalls of course such a rise in tourism proved beneficial to not only hull and his associates but the village as a whole
1: and you know Once you have a tourist attraction like that, those tourists are going to have requirements. uh, They're going to need hotels. They're going to need motels. They're going to need to take the train. They're going to need to eat. They're going to want to buy postcards. So immediately there's this gigantic jump in the economy. And so there's this
0: ripple effect. One newspaper estimated that the Cardiff Hotel had done more business in four days than in the last several months. Cardiff is a tiny little town, not
1: nearly enough room. I think there was like one boarding house there that maybe had like a a handful of rooms. So if you wanted to come and see the Cardiff giant, odds are you were stopping in, you were going to stay at hotels in Syracuse. So, especially in Syracuse, the business people in Syracuse recognized immediately whether they believed the giant was real or not didn't make any damn difference. It was, we've got a gold mine here and we want to encourage people to come here and spend their money. And it had a huge impact on the the local economy, certainly in Cardiff, but Syracuse even on a larger scale because they had more opportunities, more things that they could offer the tourists who were flocking to see the Cardiff giant.
0: Gimmicky restaurants like the Giant Saloon and the Goliath House sprung up to cater to the excited crowds. Within a week and a half, three different pamphlets, each dubbed the only authentic and reliable giant guide, were being sold. It seems that what had started out as a prank was quickly launching a local economy. Before long, Newell was getting offers from other entrepreneurs looking to get into the giant business. Such unprecedented popularity even intrigued the Prince of Humbugs himself, the one and only Mr. P.T. Barnum.
2: So Barnum is intrigued by the whole
0: thing. That's Kathy Marr, director of the P.T. Barnum Museum in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Sending a business associate to scope it out, he offered $10,000 for the body, which Newell turned down. But Hull was beginning to lose trust in his brother-in-law, who had already leaked their secret to several friends and family members, so he pressured him to sell. And on October 23, 1869, a syndicate of men purchased a three-fourth share of the specimen for over $30,000, leaving the last quarter for Hull and Newell to share. Once the property of some nobody farmer, the statue now belonged to some of the most elite and respected figures in society. The statue was moved to an exhibition hall in Syracuse where two of the shareholders had served as mayor. When the Syracuse exhibit opened, the business began booming with daily profits totaling to at least $2,000.
2: And that's when one of the Syracuse gentlemen named um, David Hannum actually says, there's a sucker born every minute. And that's how that got stuck on Barnum.
0: And though he never said it, he was well aware of the giant fever, leading him to try yet again in securing the statue.
2: Barnum actually uh, sends an emissary up to negotiate its loan. Let me borrow it. I'll cut the proceeds with it. I'll travel it to New York. We'll do a whole tour of it. This
0: time, he offered a whopping $60,000 for a mere three-month rental. Again, however, he was denied. Why would the owners want to take a break when things were taking off at such an exciting pace? The New York Central Railroad even ordered their trains to make a 10-minute stop, allowing passengers to cross the street and catch a gander of the giant.
1: And I don't know if this is apocryphal, if this is a true story or not, but according to what I've read, in the elections in November, People were writing in the name of the Cardiff giant for some local local political offices.
0: Like Cardiff, Syracuse saw an instant boom in its economy, with hotels housing 50 to 100 giant tourists every night. Countless brands appropriated the myth to advertise their own goods. Even after the discovery was definitively deemed a statue, the Syracuse standard continued to indulge notions of petrification, even going so far as to deliberately misconstrue the accounts of experts and openly smear any skeptics. It seems fossilized monsters sold more papers than unearthed sculptures.
1: If ultimately you just say up to humbug, move along. There's nothing more to write. There's no more, no more newspapers to sell. No more screaming headlines. Um, I actually saw in one of the newspapers the oh, the syndicate of owners who ultimately bought what a three three quarter interest of the giant from Hull and Newell. They took out a look Looks like a half page ad in which they offer a reward for anyone who can prove that the giant is not real. I think it was, they, they, they said that, I think it was a $500 reward. So again, they were just, and again, the, the syndicate of owners, whether they believed it was real or not, this was a way of ginning up interest.
0: However, they could not conceal the truth forever. People began questioning why 90% of Newell's profits were going to his brother-in-law if the statue was found on his farm. Additionally, spurned by his rejected offers, Barnum sent a second spy, but this time it was not during business hours. Sneaking into the auditorium at midnight, the man chipped a small piece off the giant and brought it to Cornell University President Andrew White, who deemed it plain old gypsum ruling out any fossilization theory. This was also significant considering that much of the evidence supporting the statue's antiquity was the extreme erosion quite apparent on the specimen. However, as one mining engineer asserted at the time, gypsum is incredibly soluble in water, meaning if the giant had been buried for any significant period of time in the soggy soil of Newell's farm, it would have surely eroded completely. Officials took the testimonies of residents in Fort Dodge as well as farmers around Tully and Cardiff who remembered witnessing various steps in Hull's operation. Paul could see the walls closing in, so in December 1869 he decided to come clean and provided a detailed account of what had taken place. But how can you blame him? He had made plenty to live off of at this point, and since he had already sold nearly all of his ownership over the statue, this really wasn't his problem anymore. And at the end of the day, this was never about the money. Enticed by the ridicule that would befall all evangelicals, he gladly spilled the beans. One can only imagine the sense of gratification he felt in betraying Reverend Turk and his lot after so long a con. And as mean-spirited as the stunt may be, there remains something undeniably American in the challenging of religious leaders and their antiquated beliefs. Miraculously, this admission did not stop the crowds from thronging, and the exhibit continued to make thousands for everyone involved. Once his
1: confession was uh, verified... People were still, they still trotted it out, the the giant, to show it at, at, you know, county fairs and state fairs. And so there still was this interest. The interest shifted from, gee, was this a real giant? I want to see this, to, wow, what an interesting humbug. I want to see it.
0: In fact, even more people came now, hoping to catch a glance at the giant that fooled all of New York. Surprisingly, an eager albeit few number of attendees remained so set in their beliefs that they actually disregarded Hall's confession and their persistence of the statue's ancient origin. With all of this success, the Cardiff giant had begun to monopolize the market on curiosities, but the twice-dismissed Prince of Humbugs was not one to stand idly by when money was
2: on the line. And Barnum's like, fine, I'll make my own. Barnum sends an artist up to do a sketch illustration. Barnum creates his fake of the real fake Cardiff Giant.
0: Recruiting a morally questionable Syracuse sculptor named C.C.F. Otto, he commissioned an exact replica of the Cardiff Giant, which he touted as the only authentic version. This of course marked a particularly unusual moment in which customers paid their hard-earned cash to witness the hoax of a hoax. Things became even more ridiculous when the real giant was brought to Apollo Hall in New York City where it was exhibited only two blocks away from Barnum's model. It was such a sight that Mark Twain even wrote a short story about it. Ghost story by Mark Twain, and it's all about how the ghost of the Cardiff Giant
1: is haunting this hotel, um, hoping that they will put his body back in the ground, and it turns out he's been haunting the wrong one. And it's really a very well-written and funny story.
0: Stories aside, this did not bode well for the owners of the original Marvel, who watched their crowds shrink night after night as they filled Barnum's freak show. With both camps presenting the same attraction, it became a game of showmanship, something that came naturally to P.T., who had cultivated quite the reputation.
2: What Barnum brought to the table in 1869 was him. He was known. He had the huge name recognition. There was value to to people in the mid-19th century. There was value to a Barnum attraction, that it was worth their money, it was worth their time, because they're going to leave getting something out of it. No matter what, what, and it didn't matter if it was real, if it was a fake of a fake, they knew that they were going to get something out of it if it was a Barnum presentation.
0: So dismayed were they that David Hanum, who still owned a good chunk of the giant, tried to get an injunction to prohibit the display of the copy, but the judge refused to hear their case unless the quote-unquote genuineness of the original could be proven. Recognizing his defeat, Hanum dropped the case and took the statue to Boston, where he could return to a success free from the threat of competition but while it may have attracted some initial interest, almost two years had passed since the giant had been dug up and the public had begun to move on to new zeitgeists. To stir things up, Hannum revived the statue theory and even allowed Dr. Oliver Wendell Holmes to bear a small hole in the back of the left ear, which remains to this day. Reasoning that if it were a petrified man, it would have petrified brain tissue in its skull, Dr. Holmes declared it an ancient statue without considering any other alternative. The writer Ralph Waldo Emerson also saw the giant around this time and declared it, quote, "...beyond my depth, very wonderful, and undoubtedly ancient." End quote. Following a few more trips throughout the Northeast in the early 1870s, Hannum placed the statue in storage. Newell had fully left the giant business at this point, and Hull was recovering from an unsuccessful investment in Binghamton, which is perhaps why he traveled all the way to Colorado to bury a new statue, this time made of clay and a monkey corpse, with his new partner, none other than Barnum
2: himself. And those kind of things were not unusual. Um, You know, and here we're just talking about the Cardiff giant. This was kind of a blip in Barnum's life, you know, a fun blip, but a blip nonetheless.
0: So, if this story has any happy ending, it's that these two once bitter rivals would ultimately join together in their quest to trick people and take their money. As for the original Cardiff Giant, it commenced a 40-year hibernation interrupted by a quick appearance at the 1901 Pan American Exposition in Buffalo. And if you're thinking, hold on, isn't that the same exposition where Leon Cholgoth shot U.S. President William McKinley? Of course it is, but that's for some other podcast to handle. Ownership of the giant was sold at the exposition, but it would continue to travel through a number of hands over the following decades while making the occasional cameo at state festivals and parades. After seeing it at the 1935 Iowa State Fair, Des Moines publisher Gordon Cowles Jr. bought the statue which served as a coffee table for his basement rumpus room for over a decade before it was finally purchased by the Farmers Museum in Cooperstown, New York, where it was placed on display on May 19, 1948, a full 80 years since it was first buried.
3: Today, the Cardiff Giant is the first thing you see when you walk through the doors.
0: That's Michael Tamburino, an employee at the Farmer's Museum.
3: Uh, it's right there at the front of the museum with this uh, red uh, curtain draped over it and a big banner and uh, its own wing of the museum, right as your entrance. The first thing people see. It tends to have this magnetism uh, because it's the first thing that you hit when you walk in, you know, it just draws people over there and you can see even if people don't know what it is, their eyes light up and they go, oh my god, what is that? And they're drawn over to this massive hulking framed in the corner. It's, uh, it's pretty remarkable. It's still, it still draws, you know, the eye of everyone who walks in.
0: But as astounding as it remains, the gullibility of its audience has surely changed.
3: It does not look convincing to modern audiences because we have access to so much more rational, scientific thought and all this. However, if you're under the age of six, uh, it's very, very impressive and scary. And well, not scary. It's it's impressive if you're under the age of six, because I see young kids going, going oh, my God, Mom, who is he? What is, what is he doing here? Is he OK? You know, it's uh, so, yeah, I, I think it depends on your age. Um, and and your background. But yeah, it certainly is very impressive. And when, when I'm in the presence of, of it, you know, you feel like it's something special.
0: Aside from his own clay monkey statue, George Hall's Cardiff Giant went on to inspire a whole wave of imitations with at least four recorded within the first two decades of the original's alleged discovery, including one particularly ghastly case of a real human body injected with chemicals to render it petrified. These initial four copycats span as far as California and even Ireland, demonstrating the massive influence that had come from the small obscure hamlet of Cardiff, New York. Even in the 20th century, people continued forging astounding archaeological discoveries, such as the Piltdown Man whom Charles Dawson presented to the scientific community in 1912, only to be exposed as a fake over 40 years later. Interestingly, while religious fundamentalists applauded the Cardiff giant for validating their beliefs, they scorned the Piltdown man for filling in the missing link, thus confirming Darwinism. Defense attorney Clarence Darrow even used the discovery as evidence in the Scopes Monkey Trial of 1925 that first sparked debate about whether a teacher could discuss evolution in the classroom. Fortunately for Darrow's ego, he died 15 years before the exposure, which creationists would go on to cite as evidence of an alleged dishonesty within the scientific community, despite the fact that the hoax was debunked by scientists. The list of fabricated human ancestors goes on and on and it would get monotonous to try to count them all as it is the favorite modus apparatus for archaeological conmen and for good reason.
1: The human story is the story that's going to be most engaging to people and human antiquity is most i mean people love dinosaurs and mammoths but if we're talking about humanity and does it fit the story in the bible and if not what does it imply about human beings in terms of our relationship to animals and are we are we better than animals are we higher than animals and lower than angels i can't imagine being a human being and not not being transfixed by the, the the story of who we are, where we came from, and where that implies we're going. And so it is not surprising that hoaxers and tricksters find that that, that is a, a fertile field um, for plowing, you know, or for it's a fertile field for burying giants or a mixture of a human skull and an orangutan jaw. In a way, it's all part of the same package. It's wanting the past to be written in a certain way, and if the archeologists and the geologists aren't finding that, well, we'll just write our own story by putting things in the ground, and we're gonna make a bunch of money doing it, and maybe we'll actually convince people of uh, a a more righteous history uh, that uh, science would have people um, leave behind.
0: The scientific field is well acquainted with snake oil salesmen and plain incompetence enabling the spread of misinformation. But the scientific field is also capable of self-editing and constantly amends its collective knowledge when new studies come out. It is this very malleability that allows so many rubes to fall victim to such charlatanism, but it's the same malleability that allows it to ultimately purge itself of the mistakes and embarrassments. So while you should certainly trust science, I guess what I'm getting at is, the next time someone asks you for a block of gypsum but won't say why, maybe lock that memory away for later just in case. This episode featured an original interview with Professor Kenneth Feder. If you would like to learn more about archaeological hoaxes, check out his book, Frauds, Myths, and Mysteries, Science and Pseudoscience in Archaeology. A link to purchase this publication and as many others can be found on our website at snakeoilshow.com. This episode also featured an original interview with Kathy Marr, Executive Director of the P.T. Barnum Museum in Bridgeport, Connecticut. If you would like to learn more about Barnum, the Prince of Humbugs, we highly encourage you pay them a visit at 820 Main Street, Bridgeport, Connecticut. For additional information, check out their website at barnum-museum.org. This episode also featured an original interview with Michael Tamburino, Manager of Performing Arts Programs at the Farmers Museum, which is the current home of the Cardiff Giant. If you'd like to see the creature in the flesh, well, in the stone, I can tell you it's worth a drive. Just head on down to 5775 State Highway, 80 Lake Road, Cooperstown, New York. Snake Oil is written and produced in New York City by me, Jason Potel. Editing and music by James Manton in Syracuse, New York. Thank you for listening.